Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to preach from this pulpit this morning. God, I pray that you would be with each one of us, myself included, Lord, as we open your word and listen. Father, I pray now that the Holy Spirit would come, would continue to abide with us and enable every heart to see to hear, to understand your word in this text, Father, in particular. Lord, would the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ consume us that we might not be broken by it, Father, but only to be restored and sent back to you, not to be sent away hopeless because its demands are far too high for flesh to meet. So, Lord, be with us. Be with me, please, Lord God. I pray that you would just consume me for the sake of your name and the sake of your people in this I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Amen Well happy Heritage Sunday Moundsville Baptist Church we, you, I don't think I can say we yet I've only been here for just over two months but we're 115 years old is that correct? I think it is, if not it's totally June's fault, I asked her so (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding I'm kidding (laughs) Um, but we've been in this building for 60 years, right, since 1958. Uh, and I do, I thank you, June, for those details very much. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if I guess, the path of, of uh, you know, ministry life I've been on, I've never been a part of a church with that kind of history. And, and I think more and more it's very rare, unfortunately, you know. Um, so I just, I, I, I want to thank you for letting my family and I be a part of this church. I don't deserve to be your pastor. I don't. And um, I'm so thankful that you would have me and uh, let us be a part of this. And, and I, I also, I just want to say, uh, I know there would be so many people individually that have, that, that, like every single one of you and so many in the past have been a part of that. And I've waited for the opportunity to say this publicly. You know, I've tried to think when would be the right time and, I think today would be as good as any, but I want to give uh, specific thanks this morning from this pulpit to uh, Reverend Steele and Reverend Price. Uh, Ron, wherever you are, I can't see you. I think you might be up there somewhere around, but um, I I have the the pleasure, and that's what it is, every Sunday of getting up here and looking out and seeing your faces and realizing that, not because it's me, but you are eager to... You're eager people to hear the word. That, that, do you know, that's like saying sick them to a dog for a preacher, you know? And, and I, I, and, and I, I do believe in my heart that, that, that in the providence of God, a huge reason for that is, is that Reverend Steele opened the word here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for 47 and a half years. And so for that hunger, I thank you in the providence of God for that. And Reverend Price, uh, having been here over 30 years uh, and, and loving, if you knew the love that he had for you or that he has for you, as, as uh, you know, we, we talk almost every day, and I see him almost every day, and his love for this church and, and the way that he feels so much for this church, I get to see that every day. To have two men like that 
in, in the church where you're ministering is an amazing gift. It's an amazing gift, and I'm very thankful for that. I just wanted to say those things because I thought this would be a nice Sunday to say those things. It's Heritage Sunday, and we're celebrating our, you know, our, our, our time here, and so it's just, I'm just thankful to be a part of it. Thankful to be a part of it. Um, the 1981 film, Chariots of Fire, I don't know if, how many of you have seen it, but it told the story of two uh, British track athletes. One was a Jew. One was a devout Christian, a man that ended up giving his life in China for the gospel. Um, but they competed in the 1924 Olympic Games. And while reflecting on the upcoming race, one of them, Harold Abrahams, says this. As he's looking out on the track, he says, And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? So he's looking at the track. He says, I have ten seconds to justify my existence. Ten seconds to prove my worth. Ten seconds to prove whether or not he's valuable. And I suppose in its own way it's a an inspiring thing to think, but really at its core, that line of thought is a tragedy. And it's one that I imagine most of us are familiar with, even though most of us will never be in the Olympics. But we feel this way all the time. You know, we do. We try to find our identity, our worth in something. And I love what author Michael Kelly says there. He says, one hour to prove I'm a good worker, for example. One clever blog post to remind people they should keep reading me. One insightful tweet to make people think I'm smart. One sermon to prove my worth. This is our lives. Dads often go to work every day to justify their existence. Believing that what they're able to provide for their families is what really determines their worth. Moms struggle with raising children under the constant pressure of believing that if their kids aren't good enough and their kids don't turn out right, that they've literally failed as a person. We get older, maybe we retire, and we begin to think that if we're no longer productive or important like we were before, then we've outlived our usefulness. There's really no point to us being here anymore. We no longer have any worth. Young men, they want to be thought of as strong and handsome and athletic because what good are they if they aren't any of those things? They aren't as good as the other kid or as popular as he is or as good at sports as he is. Young women tend to measure their own worth by looking at other girls that they think are pretty. If they don't look like that, if they aren't popular like that, what good are they? We struggle with this all the time. We, At every stage in life, we look across the aisle, we look down the hallway, we look at all the other cars, all the other kids, we look at the other marriage we look at the other professional. We look at the other man, at the other woman, and we think, will I ever be as good as that? Why can't I be like that? I want to be like that. The brokenness that characterizes us has deceived us into thinking that the goal of our lives is to find an identity. To make something of ourselves. To go out and discover who we really are and what our verse, so to speak, will be to contribute to humanity. The gospel rescues us from lacking an identity, beloved. Jesus Christ rescues us 
from not being able to get a grip on ourselves. Paul writes that we fix our eyes on Christ to heal our brokenness. That's what Colossians is mainly about. The Colossian believers, regardless of their position in life, in our text this morning in chapter 3, were called to live horizontally towards one another based on what God had made true already in the gospel. We get our identity from God regardless of our position in life, grounding us then in love and hope through the gospel in everything. So let's look at this text together as we continue through. I'll begin at Colossians 3.18. I'll read through 4.1, which will be our text for this morning. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. All right? How are we all doing with those commands? It's a devastating text. If if, if we take the word literally, which we should if we take it at face value, it's a devastating text if we're honest with it. Here comes the law, right? It's been so good. You know, now here comes the law. Here come the commands. As Paul zeroes the focus in on Christ, the commands get clearer. They get more specific. Where is our hope going to be? Where is our hope going to be as we read through the latter part of Colossians chapter 3? If, if, if the more clear Paul gets about Christ causes him to get more clear about the commands, we want then to think of these commands as reflections then of setting our mind on Christ, which is the, the command. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 3, that command to set your mind on Christ, seek the things that are above, that's grounding everything that follows it here as it pertains to commands. What is the result of heavenly mindedness in the most foundational or normal elements of daily life, right? The home and the workplace. Even though we'll have to make some distinctions when we get there because employees today are not like slaves back then. But that the, the, the principle is basically the same. In fact, the command is heightened here for employees because we aren't slaves. But heading into this text this morning, we need to understand that what we're seeing in front of us, these commands, beloved, are the result of something. We're reading implications of the gospel. These very specific commands come at the end of the letter, Right? after Paul has made certain things very clear. To read them in context as a whole, before we break them down individually, is to read them saying to ourselves what Paul has been saying to us. We want to learn to argue to ourselves like Paul does with that word, if 
that is used so much in the latter part of 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So we want to ask here as we head into verse 18, head into these commands, if we take the whole letter, the whole context into account, we want to be asking ourselves, if God has qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, if He's delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of His beloved Son, if I have redemption and my sins are forgiven and I have been reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ, if God did this to present me holy and blameless to Him, if I am stable and steadfast in Him and don't want my hope to shift to anything apart from the gospel, if I was dead in trespasses and sins but God made me alive together with Jesus and canceled the record of debt that stood against me, if with Christ I have died to the elemental spirits of the world and have been raised with Christ, if I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God, if I am one of God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, what does that mean for me if I'm a wife? What does all that mean for me if I'm a husband? What does all that mean for me in my relationship to my parents? In the immediate context, what did it mean if you were a slave or if you were a master of slaves? But beloved, this isn't litmus test time. That's not what's happening here. If you're really saved, this is the kind of wife you'll be. You would, if you're really saved, this is the kind of husband you would be. You would have no ground for hope and confidence other than your ability to follow the command and you would end up hopeless or a Pharisee. It's not where we look. Remember, batteries are not included in commands. There is no power whatsoever in the sentence, husbands, love your wives to make you love your wife. It's not there. We don't look there. But the command is there. But the commands are the result of something already being true, beloved. Don't ever forget that. These are commands to the different Christians that were making up the church at Colossae. It's, it's probably just like our church, right? Wives, husbands, kids, teens, all of that. And, you know, Slaves, masters, in this context, again, we'll define it later a little more, but workers and bosses... We are God's chosen ones already, right? That's 3.12. We aren't trying to become God's chosen ones by obeying these commands. We are God's chosen ones, therefore come the commands. And since the gospel is true, since Jesus is our Savior, there is a way to see ourselves that will help us live under the protection of God's ordained order, which is what's being expressed here. We want to live in those rhythms of peace that God wove into creation. It's not a long, white-bearded, grumpy old man barking orders because he's a killjoy and doesn't want anybody to have fun. It's not where commands come from. They come from a God who loves us covenantally, set his eternal affections upon us, and made us his own. That's where commands come from. The creator of joy, the creator of hope, the creator of pleasure gives these commands. So we head into the text. Paul speaks first to the wives in verse 18. Twice in Paul's letters, here, Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33, Colossians and Ephesians are, are written um, very similarly. Uh, but twice in his letters, Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives. And amazingly, so counterculturally, he addresses the wives first not the husbands. The Bible 
doesn't seem to be worried about the fact that it will increasingly fall out of favor with culture. The Bible isn't worried about that. The Bible just stands. Few things in the Bible are more irritating and reprehensible in our day and age than the verses we're reading this morning. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. In Ephesians 5, they're called to submit to their husbands in everything. This is what honors God. This is what is fitting. Right? That's the word the text uses. In other words, this is an order that God has established, a rhythm to things. And when a wife's mind is fixed on Christ, she's able to submit to a husband, or she's able, let me say it this way, she's able to put up with a less than perfect husband. When her identity is rooted in Christ and not in her husband, she can live by faith, which is what submitting to a human husband really is. It's an act of faith, because I've yet to meet a man who truly deserved a woman's submission, as the Bible calls her to it. That includes most of all the man I see in the mirror every morning. This does not mean, this command does not mean that a woman is supposed to be silent and just take abuse. It does not mean she has no voice. It does not mean she cannot disagree with her husband. It doesn't mean she is looked over. Husbands, notice this. God speaks through Paul to each person individually because we are equals in the body of Christ. Remember chapter 3, verse 11. Let's look at it quickly. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This command comes after the truth of 3.11 has been stated so that that truth has to inform and shape the way we view the commands. Notice that 3.18 is not a command to husbands to make their wives submit to them. That's not the way it works. Husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. I think we think that's what the verse says. That's not what the verse says. The verse is written to the wife. God speaks directly to wives. That was so countercultural in the Greek culture of the Roman Empire, even the Jewish culture at the time. Husbands are also given duties in this passage, not just the wife. And in Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties belong to the wife. This command gave wives dignity at that time that the culture did not give to them by addressing them directly. It's addressing them as though they also are recognized, they also are seen by God and considered to be under His Lordship as equal servants as well. It's actually a text that gives a ton of dignity to women because God sees them. God takes them into account. He doesn't consider them a peripheral thing as the culture normally did. Wives, you're called by God to submit to your husbands. It's not a rule your husband is holding over your head. It comes from God. And submitting to it is a matter of whether or not you will submit to God. Don't look at your husbands to determine whether or not this command is for you, wives. Set your minds on Christ. If you just look at your husband to determine whether or not you should follow this command, you'll find a a veritable laundry list of reasons probably not to submit to him. 
But since this command has nothing to do with one gender being superior to another, wife, you don't need to fear this passage. As it is, I know that some of you may be in marriages that the thought of submitting to the man you married is horrifying. I don't say that to be funny because it's not funny. You may be in an extremely difficult marriage to what might be a horrible man. And so you read this text and you think, God, do you even know that I exist? Right? Do you know what my marriage is like and this is what you're calling me to? You can't look at him. Being called to submit to your husband is not a call to recognize that he is above you. That's not what's happening here. It's how you as a wife uniquely live in light of the truth of the gospel. Women display the submission of the church to Jesus in their submission. It's a Godward thing, not a manward thing. Each of us has a role to play in uniquely displaying the gospel story, no matter what our position in life is, wives, husbands, children, slave, master, boss, employee. So wives follow the leadership of their husband, not into sin. It's not not what this means here. But we follow the leadership of their husband precisely because Christ is the one who is the head of the church. That's why it has nothing to do with whether your husband deserves or is worthy of your submission. He may never be worthy of your submission. Jesus will always be worthy of your submission. And we can't get in, we can't nuance it to death. There, there are times when you would not have to put up with what your husband is doing. I just want you to know that we believe that. We're, we're, we just understand that. But as a gen, very rarely is your husband going to say, hey, you and me are going to go rob that bank and break the law and you're doing it. You know, right? it's, it's, if you qualify it that way, then you can just, I never have to submit to my husband. That usually doesn't happen. Right? Usually doesn't happen. I hope it doesn't happen. That would be tough. Wives follow the leadership of their husband precisely because Christ is the one who is the head of the church. It has nothing to do with whether or not your husband is worthy of it. So I I would say to the wife, as, as much as you are able, don't run your husband down. Don't complain that he isn't the romantic dreamboat you want him to be. Right? Don't. Or maybe he doesn't bring home the money that you wish he did. Don't don't make his life an unfair quest to serve you. That's just that's a horrible burden to put on somebody. And and, and ladies, and don't worry, I'm getting to the husbands in a minute. Okay? So don't don't worry. But but can we all just admit deep inside, even if we don't want anybody else to hear it, that maybe we aren't as easy to love as we think we are. You know, or or Maybe we're not as easy to submit to as we think we are, right? Let's keep, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Respect him as you can, follow his lead in faith. But ladies, don't for one second think it's because he's higher than you. He is not. And this isn't a call for all women to submit to all men either, right? This is for wives to submit to their husbands. Your husband is never going to be higher than you, not by being a husband and not by being a male. However, Jesus always is higher than you, just as he's higher than your husband. And this command comes from him. Husbands. Brothers. To whom it's much easier to speak on this issue since I'm one of you. 
our command, if we take Colossians 3.19, I think, and Ephesians 5.22-33 into account, our command is just indescribably impossible, for lack of a better word. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's the frame of reference for how we love our wives. How am I supposed to love her as Christ loved the church? If you know Christ at all, the minute you hear that sentence, you should be saying, so I love her no matter what, all the time, always forgiving, always perfect, always taking care of her, always thinking of her first, always serving her. Yeah. Yeah. That's the command. That's the command. Love your wives here and do not be harsh with them. What do we do? You talk to just, just the men for a moment. What do we do when the Bible commands us to feel? That's not fair, is it? That's the command. Love, love her. Love her. Don't be harsh with her. Love her as Christ loved the church. We're being commanded to feel. But before we even get into that, we want to understand how novel and beautiful of an idea it would have been in first century, the first century Roman Empire for any talk about marriage to command that a husband actually love his wife. It's a beautiful thing on the surface. God gives wives a tremendous amount of dignity here. God is not indifferent to whether or not you are loved, wife. He is not indifferent to it. How your husband feels about you, wives, is an issue that God brings up. And isn't it precious when you read here that when wives are called to submit, which is a scary thing, God immediately says to the husband, and you better not be harsh with her in that. That is not the purpose of the command. That's verse 19. Love her. Men, love your wife. The command to husbands and wives here are meant to send us running to Jesus. It's what they're doing. It's a terrifying thing when the living God commands us to submit to people who aren't worthy of it and feel something we might not always feel. If when you read the commands of Scripture, if you can read through this, sec- this section and you aren't broken by the weight of it, you think way too highly of your own abilities. Again, I, I, I'm not speaking from this experience where I have this horrible marriage and it's so hard to love my wife. I am blessed. Everything you hear me say, right, I, am, I, just, I do not deserve this woman on any level. So please, I'm not, I'm not like talking like from this, this, uh, you know, mountaintop of you should be like me. No, be like Jesus. <laughs> Don't be like me. Don't be like me. But, but why do we think Paul has grounded all of this in the gospel? So that when we get to 3.18 and following, we can say, thank you, God, that I'm accepted by you, whether I obey these commands well or not. We've got to have the gospel when we get to the commands or we're hopeless. Jesus never stopped perfectly loving. And husband, that's what you're called to do. That's what I'm called to do. The text has to break us. Husbands, we're, we're commanded to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, which He showed specifically by giving up His life, by giving up His rights for her. 
Do you know how we ought to love and serve her then? And again, just like on the submit side, maybe she's not worthy of that kind of love. Maybe she's a very hard woman to love. A very difficult relationship. Maybe that's what your marriage might be. The servant in the marriage relationship is actually the husband. I know the wife is called to submit, but the servant in the relationship is the husband. Think, what did Jesus say? What did the lover of his bride say about her? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wasn't broadcasting it, but when he was washing the feet of his church, I doubt there was any doubt in the room who the leader was. But that's how they knew it. That's how they knew it. He washed their feet. This is how we're called to love our wives, brothers. It's how we're called to love our wives. Listen, godly leadership in the home does not mean we always win, husbands. doesn't mean that because she's called to submit, we're always going to get what we want. If we're going to love like Jesus and serve like Jesus, it means more often than not, we will defer. We'll let her win. We'll, we'll put her on the pedestal in the marriage. And listen, again, she may not be worth it. But you and I aren't called to love her no matter what because she's worthy of it, but because Christ is worthy of that. And I'm not trying to be mean to any, whether husband or wife, by continuing that, you know, they may not be worth it. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. It, it's, it's a gospel phrase. Beloved, the way Jesus loved us, He loved us, He demonstrated His love for us, not the cleaned up version of ourselves that comes later. He demonstrated His love for us by dying for us when we did not deserve it. When we were sinners. He looked at us in our filth and said, I will die for you to make you my own. It's, 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 everything's a God, it's always a gospel issue. If, if Jesus is always the frame of reference, which is how the text is written, we're always going to be the loving, serving, broken. Do you understand that? It, it's, that's what we're called to. And this is how the gospel, those unique elements of the gospel affect us in these different stages of our lives or different positions in life. Set your mind on Christ, husbands. You know, I, I don't, I get so tired of everything that comes out for men specifically just beats them down for not being godly enough. Like, I, I don't want to do that. You know, it's, it's, I, I'd love to know how those guys that write all those things treat their kids. You know, I want to know how you treat your kid and your wife if you're going to be telling me I need to step it up, right? I don't care how many verses you can quote. I don't care how many books you've written. Do your kids love you? Does your wife thrive? That's, that's what I want to know. We set our minds on Christ. It's, it's, listen, it's, it's crazy for a rebellious, demanding, non-submissive wife to demand love. And it's crazy for an unloving, cruel jerk of a husband to demand submission. Keep your eyes on Christ. None of Paul's commands here are for us to beat one another over the head with. Right? Don't leave today. As the wives, the pastor said, you have to defer to me, so we're buying that car. 
pastor said, you have to submit to me, so you will see this my way. No, 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 no. Don't blame me for the tension in your marriage. All right? I'm quoting the Bible. All right? Don't. When you consider how impossible this text seems to our minds, when, when you're broken by the impossibility of obeying this text, beloved, it's God's mercy in your heart. Let that conviction be a, be a beam that leads you back to the sun of how sufficient Jesus really must be for us in the gospel then when you read these commands. There's no key to a successful marriage in the Bible. That's, that's a marketing ploy. All right. It, it, it's, most marriage books are, uh, garbage. You know, I just, I did, of all the things, you know, that, that just husband and wife after husband and wife after husband and wife broken, and they've got every book on their shelf. You know, they know each other's love language. That's my favorite. You know, that if you would just give me more gifts, I would feel loved. No way. Wow. That, that's, that blows, that got published? Like, if, if you do more of what I like, this will be easier for you. Oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah. I'll bet. Where is Christ in this? You don't, you, we don't soften the law. It's not manageable, beloved. We can't stand under the law. It's, it's, it sends us running to Christ. Running to Him. God knows what the world is like. He knows what He's commanding you of. It's not like if you tweak your personality a bit, all your problems will be solved. It's not the way it works. We need a Savior. We need a Savior, not some assistance. There's no guarantee. What I mean is this. There's no guarantee in the text that if you love well or submit well, that all your problems will be solved. Most problems will not be solved on this side of glory, beloved. Paul knows that. So he says, set your minds on Christ. Seek the things that are above. Your Savior and Shepherd Jesus sees it all. You need to know that. Every one of your tears is kept in a bottle. As you struggle through this life, as you struggle through what might be a very difficult marriage or a difficult relationship with your kids, every tear is kept in a bottle. Every prayer is heard. Your name is graven on His hand and written on His heart. He is coming after you to receive you to Himself. This is where your hope is. This is where your life is. This is where your peace is in who Christ is and what Christ has done for you that is irrevocable and irreplaceable and perfect. Every second of every day for you is Christ. Kids, do you know what it means for you to submit above all things to God who is in heaven? You know, the Bible talks about you. You obey and respect your parents. This is how you please God even as a child. Verse 20. Your parents are not always going to be right and fair. That doesn't free you, young people, to disobey or disrespect your mom and dad. I can tell you this. I can assume this. 
I know that your parents will frustrate you, young people. But if you knew... how hard they are probably trying to love you, you wouldn't get so mad. <laughs> but, children, it's a be- see, God recognizes you. He sees you. It is more important that you understand the value of submitting to authority in your life than it is that you get your way. I'm just going to tell you, very rarely are you going to get your way. That's the world we live in. That's how it is. Some of you may not have very good parents. I don't doubt that for a second. But God is always a good father. God is always a perfect father. Don't be silent in abuse. That's not what this text is saying. Don't think it's okay if they treat you unfairly or harshly. But don't think it's a waste of time to follow the rules. It is not. Trust me, you're going to make them for your kids one day too. And you already have rules in your life for other people that you get mad at them for not following. That's the way it is. Look at verse 21 and notice that the mother is not in this command. This comes directly to the father. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Twice in this text he commands the one who is the head of the house. The commands for the head of the home are tempered by the mercy of God. Twice. Don't be harsh with your wives. And then he says, don't provoke your children to the dads. It's God's mercy solemnly instructing us not to abuse our authority or to take advantage of those under it, so to speak. Dads, don't intentionally irritate or nag or deride or put your children down. It's wrong And it's sinful, brothers. We cannot treat our kids this way. Our kids are not props to our glory. It's not what they're for. God didn't bless the marriage life with children so that somebody could get our drinks for us. Right? There's more going on here. Don't perpetually find fault in them. They know they're sinners. They know they need help. God puts up with us for our endless faults. He's proven in Christ that He will never leave us or forsake us, never leave us outside of the house for any of our sins or shortcomings or inabilities, right? We're accepted all the time in the Beloved. Don't forget that when you're tempted to break the spirit of your children for their faults. We need to pray as dads about our irritability, our grouchiness, Don't make unnecessarily harsh or over-strict rules that no sinner would be able to consistently obey. Right? Dads, let's not keep them at a distance. Let's not neglect to discipline them when they do need corrected because it's easier, you know, not to mess with it. Dad, set your mind on Christ. Let's set our minds on Christ. Don't unnecessary, let's not unnecessarily burden our kids. Let's let them be kids while they're kids. Children are not horses, but there's a 
instructive little parable here. There are two ways you can break a horse. One is with the progressive use of a halter, a bit, a blanket, and saddle. Done correctly, that can produce a full-spirited and yet obedient horse. Or there's what you do with an overly difficult horse. You take a two-by-four and you knock the uncooperative horse to its knees. You can tame a horse that way, but with great cost, because it will be obedient, but it will never be what it could have been, because you broke its spirit to get it to obey. Dads, we all know, look, we all know when we're going too far and indulging our flesh with our kids. Let's not break the spirit of our kids. So look to Christ, Dad. Look to Christ. Whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And it's Jesus. Verse 22, the instructions move to bond servants. Now, now, the English Standard Version that I read from and the King James Version get this word wrong. They translate it wrong. It's slave. It's not bond servant. It's not servant. It's slave. That's who Paul is talking to. There's no need to whitewash the command. It's, it's to slaves in the culture of that time, which, which again, we, can't, we, don't, we don't have time to go into it all today, but slavery back then, don't think Civil War type slavery. It wasn't like that, but it was, st- I mean, you're still owned. You had some more rights, you, you know, but you were still a slave. You were not your own person. You were owned by another human being. Wouldn't God say to people in that position, okay, you got to get out of that position? No. Like that's, that's, that, that's so, that's not what God says. You see, God knows the world. He knows that if you get out of this bind, you're just going to get into another one. So the, the call here is not first and foremost, if you can get out of slavery, get out of it. The call is, if you are a slave, how is a slave, does the gospel affect me? It's an amazing thing. There's no need to get out of what situation you're in if the gospel is true, is what Paul is saying to slaves. Because that's what we live from. If you've died to the world, you don't need the, the, the world to meet your needs. He says rather, in this passage, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Could you imagine being a slave and think he's going to get to me, he's going to get to me, and then he tells you that? Obey them in everything. And then he goes even farther. This is That part of the command is, yeah, you're a slave, obey your master. That's what the rule would be. It's the next part of the command that makes it distinctly biblical and distinctly terrifying to think about trying to follow. He says, don't just do it to look good. Mean it in your heart. Be sincere in your work. God commands us to feel. To feel sincere in work. We have to be broken by that. Sincere as a slave. Because we aren't working for the master. You want to work as though God were the master and God sees the heart. Now remember, again, as an employee today, you are not a slave. You are not under those types of rules. You are not owned by your employer. I know we might feel like that sometimes, but we're not owned by our employers So you might think, awesome, that doesn't apply to me. Let me ask you something. If that is the command to a slave, 
What do you think that implies about how sincere and honorable and dedicated you should be in your work if you don't have it that bad? If you aren't a slave? The command has to be heightened, right? Has to be heightened. Whatever your job is, I know you may not feel that way, but it's way better than being a slave. So if they're supposed to submit like this and do their work like this and do their work with that attitude, what would be expected of somebody who doesn't have it that bad? I mean, like, like God would actually say, behind, you know, now if you're not slaves, well, then don't worry about it. You know, none of this applies if you're not a slave. Complain all you want. Gripe all you want. Demand all you want. Demand all your rights. Don't you put up with your boss's nonsense. Yeah, it's a difficult text. The world is fallen and broken. It's not fair. And beloved, God has not called us to make the world fair. He has called us to walk by faith and not by sight because it isn't. Remember this. Remember this. In fact, whatever you do, he says, no matter where you are in life, Jesus is the reference point. Look at 23 and 24 again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. How in the world can we possibly do this? We have to fix our minds on what is true. We live these various ways knowing that God will deliver what He has promised. That's the only way. That's the only way to sanity in this world. We no longer live to the world. Nothing we're called to do is because of what other people deserve or because of what is fair. That's not how God works. We live this way because we're dead to the world. Because we don't need anything from the world to have an identity. God's not calling us to find our identity in being a wife or our identity in being a husband or our identity in being a child or our identity in being a slave or our identity in being a master. That's not what He's calling us to. He's given you an identity in 312. This is what you do, what you handle until He comes for you. Heavenly mindedness then is the key to earthly sanity. Paul says to just bank on the the irrevocable nature of God's Word. Because he says that wrongdoers are going to get their due in verse 25. And there's no partiality. God keeps His Word to everybody. Whether they're for Him or against Him. That's our hope as we endure difficulty here. Same thing to Christian masters. For one, you know, why treat slaves who may not be good slaves? Why treat even those ones justly and fairly, which is what they were called to do? Because those masters also had a master and their master was God. So you could say to bosses today, how do you treat those who are under you, those who work for you? They aren't your slaves. They can actually give you trouble. They do have rights. Treating them justly and fairly is actually required by law. So the command is heightened for you. What are you going to do when they make your life difficult? And in 421, as in, or 41, as in 324, beloved, it's what we know. Everything goes back to what we know. When we have fixed our minds, what we've fixed our minds on is what will inform our reactions, our attitude, our hope. So everything is grounded in the fact that God has accepted us. So To close, Paul says, Wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters, you are God's holy and beloved chosen ones. Live knowing who you are. Don't live to discover who you are. God addresses us each individually in this text because 
None of us belongs now to the world. It doesn't define us. God addresses us by transcending our earthly identities so that we see ourselves in light of what he has declared to be true about us. The foundation of this text for our lives is that we've been given an identity as children of God. In verse 23, we find, beloved, God does not measure us based on what we produce. He doesn't measure us based on what we bring to the table, on how much status we have in the eyes of the world, because we are his chosen ones, because he loves us. We now bring him glory in whatever we do. Right? You see the beauty of that word, whatever. Single, married, rich, poor, child, parent, janitor, doctor, makes no difference. None. This is how we live because we're his. We don't get our identities from our relationships, our jobs, our self-realization. We get our identity from God regardless of our position in life. Grounding us all the time in love and hope through the gospel in everything. So look to Christ this morning. Look to Christ. For those of you in, in these stations of life as a believer struggling, look to Christ Look to Christ. Know that you have an identity. That He sees you and He knows you and He loves you and He is not blind or indifferent to you no matter where you are or what's happening. Rest in Him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus at all in a saving way that we speak of, you have to know what He's done for you. You have to know. He came born of a virgin. He didn't get Adam's curse. So from the beginning, there was the potential that if he succeeded and never sinned, he could be the sacrifice to bring us back to God. And he didn't. He didn't sin. He didn't mess up. He put his hope in God and he endured to the cross where he died for sinners like you and me to redeem us, to bring us back to the one who made us. And he is here this morning to receive you if you come to him. I'm going to pray. June is going to come and play our song of invitation. And I'll be here at the front if you need to come and pray, and then after we'll close. All right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given to us today. I thank you, Lord, for your Son. I thank you for his perfection and sufficiency, Lord. Every command he was given, he obeyed perfectly, no exceptions, and offered that perfect life up as a sacrifice for sinners. That's what started the church. So, Father, I pray that we would all look to him and rest in him this morning and receive him in every way. This I ask in the name of this Jesus. Amen.